Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Harrow, inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and you are on the record. Special Super Bowl edition. We're handling things a little bit differently this week. Big segments are the same. Opening drive starts, but Mark Tressman, former head coach of the Chicago Bears, winners of great cups in, in uh, the Canadian Football League, offensive coordinator, genius extraordinaire. He'll talk about his incredible career themed around and timed around the NFL's biggest week in Vegas. But the opening drive this week may be a little bit different. We're devoting the entire first segment to the Kansas City Swifties. <laughs> they might as well be. There are a number of stories focusing on Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, and the incredible transformation of a part of the NFL brand that didn't exist before. So number one, her romance with tight end Travis Kelsey worth, everybody's seen this, about $331 million to the Chiefs and the NFL. According to Apex Marketing Group, recently estimated the equivalent brand value of the Grammy Winners Association with Kelsey and appearances at the Chiefs games from the very first time she showed up at Arrowhead through January 22. She showed up in September. It feels like 50 years. It excludes the conference championships over the Ravens. That'll just add to the value. A really perfect situation. You have the massive concert tour took place by a superstar singer. Then you meld that with the guy in the NFL, top-name athlete, a semi-high profile, got a lot of commercials, and is well-respected. Eric Smallwood, the president of Apex, said he told MarketWatch and others all week. The company that's been in the business of sports and entertainment sponsorships and branding analysis for nine years initially tracked Swift's impact for a day or two last September. All buzz for the next 48 hours, he said. And, and then, what exactly is Apex track? Let's get behind that for a minute. Any mention or visual photograph of Taylor tied to the Chiefs or the NFL? If the Chiefs are mentioned with Taylor in an article, then it's a connection. If there's a picture of her in the suite at the Chiefs game wearing a Chiefs shirt, that's obviously a hit as well. Then it determines the so-called equivalent brand value, tracking exposures through every form of media, including radio, TV, and social. For example, every time Kelsey touches the ball and the camera pans to Swift, it would have a value. Numbers are not out on what the viewership was for the championship game, and that'll be included pretty soon. Three times to four times the viewership, so three or four times the value. The value is going to be up significantly. Smallwood said he's done studies on previous brand campaigns that have gone viral, such as Nike's decision to make the outspoken former San Francisco quarterback Colin Kaepernick the focus of the ad campaign in 18. That ended up driving a 31% online sales boost for that relationship, not to mention tons of social media buzz. The data ultimately slowed and showed, but the bottom line was the campaign a tremendous success. Even with that one, the Swift-Kelsey relationship on another level. Also increased viewership, 
of select NFL games. Ratings data been released, and the numbers showing an increase in female viewers. That's obvious, but how much? Right after Swift's appearance last September, sales of 87 jerseys reportedly soared 400%. And then there were the advertisers who have locked in Super Bowl commercial time without knowing for certain the Swifties, the Chiefs, or anybody who would play there got lucky. The singer, as a concert in Japan, as we now all know, scheduled 24 hours before, but nevertheless, Paramount Global-owned CBS had significantly sold nearly all of its Super Bowl ad inventory by early November, significantly earlier than is typical. Citing sources described as familiar with the process, Variety said that 30-second ads sold between six and a half million and seven million. Budweiser recently embattled Bud Light brand will be one of those locking up the spotlight to boost its image. When asked if Swift could end up adding a billion to brand value for the Chiefs by the time the Super Bowl is over, Smallwood said that is a heady threshold, probably aggressive. The tally probably depends on what takes place. The Niners slightly favored to win. We already know that. According to Forbes, the most valuable team in the NFL, the Cowboys, worth $9 billion, and then revenue of $540 million. Average revenue among the 32 teams rose from $581 to $581 million. The intersection of pop culture and sports, Swift's favorability rating is 54%, reflecting her broad appeal and influence. Her political endorsements... 48% of respondents believe she should refrain from public disclosure. There's a clear partisan divide on whether she should endorse candidates. But listen, the YouGov poll talks about Democrats versus Republicans. She has single-handedly, some say, increased voter registration up to 40,000 on one particular day where she was involved. The public's interest in professional football say that their interest remains unsta- unchanged, however, about 76%. So, in essence, the YouGov poll encapsulates the relationship between celebrity influence and political dynamics. That's why Super Bowl ads off the charts, political ads catching up. Wait till you see what happens in September, October, November. There's more about her, but this opening drive is all about this incredible perfect storm. Super Bowl 58. And in that context, let's take somebody who has a diverse experience in the business. Mark Tressman, former college NFL Canadian Football League coach, coached in four Grey Cups, winning three over seven years as a CFL head coach with the uh, Montreal uh, and uh, uh, Toronto teams. CFL Coach of the Year, 2009-2017, hero in Canada. Volunteer coach at the University of Miami, Jimmy Johnson, clearly important to him. Howard Schnellenberger also, but he became known as kind of the quarterback whisperer. He was with the Browns, 49ers, Raiders, Cardinals, 20-year NFL career as an offensive genius, first mentored by Bud Grant and the Vikings in 1985. His team for the Niners, number one in pass offense and number two in offense. And in 2002, 
as offensive coordinator in Oakland. The Raiders were number two in total offense and number one in passing, while Rich Gannon earned the NFL's MVP award uh, after Jake Plummer and before a number of other uh, quarterbacks as well. He has a perspective in college, also uh, played for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, coached at NC State, a number of other places, but his bottom line is also leadership. Wrote a book in 2010 called Perseverance, Life Lessons on Leadership and Teamwork, teaches at the University of Miami Law School, and has a consistent vision of what success is all like, reflects back on the NFL and CFL. Here's Mark Tressman. You know, let's start early. You know, you grow up in Minnesota. Uh, you uh, back up uh, Tony Dungy uh, at the, Minnesota, the Golden Gophers, uh, and then you transfer to Minnesota State uh, Moorhead. Uh, you're kind of a big-time guy in high school, uh, and you uh, played uh, a training camp with the Vikings in 79 and 80. Uh, when did it hit you, or did it ever, that you probably were not going to make it to the NFL, or did you have that as a kind of a lifelong aspiration? Well, I did. I, w- I was a quarterback in college, and um, through a long journey of playing against Bud Grant's son in high school football and basketball, um, and then having him be an icon and a mentor for me growing up in Minneapolis, he just happened to be watching uh, the, the Orange Bowl game when we beat Nebraska for the national championship. And he was coming out of retirement and decided that he wanted to have uh, two young coaches uh, to be on the staff. So he hired Pete Carroll and myself. But it was really after my second year of getting cut by Bud that I realized I was going to have to find my way in the legal profession. Yeah, well, you know, it always and there are a lot of us who've had choices between the legal profession and, and doing other stuff. My choice, thankfully, had nothing to do with athletics, but that's a, an entirely entirely different story. I'll so do the podcast for on you next time. We'll, <laughs> yeah, right. we, can we go will. Through that. Well, okay. We will definitely do that. Absolutely. All right. So you're at uh, you know you're at University of of Miami. Uh, you start in '81 as a volunteer coach while attending law school, and uh, as the quarterbacks coach, that was the year that Bernie Kosar led the Hurricanes to the national championship, and then Jimmy Johnson reached out. Tell me about the Jimmy Johnson reach out, and tell me your decision at that point, because, you know, you were going to be a lawyer, or at least you had yeah. the ability to be a lawyer. So how, how, was that, how was that basically career decision made? All right. Well, it really wasn't. The career really found me. Just to backtrack uh, chronologically just for a minute, I was studying for exams in the spring. Um, I can't remember now whether it was 80 or 81, and I ran to the, to the defensive backfield called Mike, Mike Archer, who was on Coach Schnellenberger's staff. Jim Kelly was the quarterback at the time, and Coach was looking for a volunteer assistant, and Mike and I started talking. It was a coincidence. It was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I, I, I was studying for exams, went out to cook some chicken, ran into Mike. A week later, I'm in front of Coach Schnellenberger, and uh, Coach Schnellenberger says, you want to be an agent, don't, no, you, don't you? And I just said, no. Um, I'm clerking for a, 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 a law firm right now, but I love football. And if I can help in any way, I'm happy to do it. Coach called me the next day, offered me a job to be a volunteer. I was, did that for a year. Um, there was a change in, in coaching staffs, the way the NCAA set it up. He offered me a full-time job coaching the quarterbacks that year, Vinny. Testaverde and Bernie Kosar were, were, were signed. Um, I coached them up uh, a year there and then uh, wound up coaching full-time just after I took the bar. And it was Howard Schnellenberger who really saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. 
The following year was Jimmy Johnson, 84. Well, you know, that chronology, some people may say is just detailed to me, knowing Miami, that's an incredibly important detail, you know, and thanks for clearing it up. At what point in that chronology did you basically make the decision, it's a law firm or something I really want to do, or was it just kind of evolutionary? No, it was it was an easy fork in the road decision. Um, I knew I never wanted to be a lawyer after the first month of being in law school. I knew it wasn't for me, but I wasn't going to finish, not not get through it, finish and take the bar. I owed that to myself and my family. I didn't want to quit. Um, but when Coach Nellenberger offered me a full-time job coaching the quarterbacks, it was really a no-brainer for me. And I I said no to a personal injury lit- personal injury litigation firm uh, downtown in Miami and, and said yes to Coach Nellenberger. And you know, fortunately, you know, six months later, I was, I was, uh, you know, holding a champ, a national championship trophy, and thinking this is the way it was going to be the rest of the way. And I certainly found out it was it would be much different. So you made the right decision, and now you transition to the NFL as running backs coach uh, for Bud Grant with Bud Grant uh, in '85, and 20 years of coaching uh, the Niners, the Raiders, the Browns, the Cardinals. Uh, in his first year of coaching these offenses, each team made a playoff uh, run and your reputation grew. So first of all, um, as a uh, as an evolution, as a coach, did you see yourself growing and learning? Was there one epiphany that said, yeah, I'm ready? How, how did that all evolve? No, I just always felt I could do it. But the, the progression was that I was very transactional for the first 15 to 18 years of my coaching career was all about title, um, salary, peer group adulation. Um, and in when I turned 50, um, I went through a real dramatic change after we got fired at NC State. And uh, I looked back at my narrative and realized I wasn't the coach I wanted to be. I was serving myself and not others. So at 50 years old, I completely went through a change that not only uh, improve the quality of my life, but uh, put me in a position where I could use football as my platform to serve the needs of others, which was players, coaches, and teammates. And I've enjoyed it tremendously ever since in any capacity that I've been in as a result of that moment of getting fired at 50. Well, and you know, we're selling books here. So the Sport Business Handbook, you have a very important chapter uh, in the book. And we talk about uh, you understanding and i'm quoting here that this is a people business of football and then as you said your journey effectively caused you to uh understand that adversity opens doors you got to stay humble and you got to have passion uh some would say that's common sense but it's a lot more than common sense so elaborate a little bit well i i just think that you know people have to make sure they know what purpose is. And sometimes I think it's ill-defined and, you know, football is a platform. It's what I do and what I did, but my purpose was to use the game of football to create environments through my competency of the game and the competency trust I had with my players to teach them about vulnerability-based trust, to, to show them what it looks like to be authentic, what authentic relationships look like. And thus, serve the needs of the people that I've worked around and that I led um, to become better versions of themselves as, um, you know, 
like that context is used a lot and to, to allow our teams to become the best version of themselves. Quarterback whisper, Jake Plummer, Rich Gannon, there are a whole lot of other ones. Uh, so uh, you um, coached the Raiders. Uh, they were the number two in total offense, number one in passing, uh, while Rich Gannon earned the NFL's MVP. That was a heady year and a heady time. Uh, when at that time uh, did you believe that you could, should, would be a coach, head coach in the NFL? Right. I think that if it was in today's terms, you know, I coached two top offenses in San Francisco and in particularly in, in Oakland where we, we went to the Super Bowl with, you know, with the number one passing game and the MVP, I certainly would have had five interviews that year to be a head coach. Um, and for whatever reason, that did, that did not happen. Um, you know, I'd already coached number one offenses, coached, you know, as you said, had some certainly had a resume worthy of it. But for one, some reason or another, uh, maybe because I look more like an accountant than a football coach, I never got the opportunity. And that's what led me to go to Canada was just to get the opportunity to stand in the shoes of a head coach and use this formula of competency and vulnerability to, to lead a team. Um, and that's what I was able to do by going to Montreal. And then um, thus, after five years in Montreal, only focusing on being the best coach I could be in Montreal, I got an opportunity to interview for the head coaching job of Chicago, not knowing anybody and having been out of the NFL for five years. So um, I, 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 the only thing I can answer is if, it, if 2002 was today, I would have had one of these seven openings, I'm sure. Um, but that was not to be the case. You know, in your first season as the head coach of the uh, of the Bears, uh, you break team records in total yards over 6,100, passing yards 4,400, passing TDs 32. Um, do you remember the day that you were hired? And then do you remember the day that you were fired? Yeah, um, the day I was hired, it was a long day. I got a call from the general manager late at night. Um and uh, told me I was going to be the head coach of the Bears. And, and um, I was very, very, it was a very tiring day because there was a lot going on. And then I immediately had to get on a plane and fly in for a press conference, which I was very much overly tired for um, and really didn't get to a chance to enjoy the moment of becoming the head coach because the timetable that they had was way too fast. Uh, an example is, you know, Jim Harbaugh got hired last week and his press conferences a week later, he's got almost a week to get ready and prepare and do the things he needs to do. And we were dealing with trying to get some coaches hired almost that night and doing some things that that made it difficult to enjoy the moment. And the day you were fired, was yep. your firing was your firing expected by you? Um, uh, I didn't expect it. Um, um, only only from what I read, you know, people the, 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 there was a smoking gun, certainly. And I got called in in the morning the day after and. Um, you know, accepted their, their decision and, uh, and, and walked, walked out of the building and, and thanked them for the opportunity. Kelly Kazar has been uh, a guy working with me for uh, a while and following in many ways, both of our footsteps. He was at UCF and that FSU just graduated the, the sports management program. Kelly, take it away. Ask uh, Mark a few questions about, uh, you know, your, the world you're in and the world you've been in. Yeah, so I just graduated from sports management and working with Rick and uh, at Florida State. And um, yeah, I just want, I know you're teaching uh, leadership down at University of Miami. 
And uh, we had a great conversation about kind of that realm before I kind of wanted to bring some of those topics back up. Um, and but at the start, it was just like, what, what do you believe is a, is a leader and, and what is a great leader? We take our class through this at, at the very, from a very fundamental point of view. I, and, I, and I got the inspiration to do it because quarterbacks aren't born. They need to be developed. And, uh, yeah. and they're developed through the daily relentless, um, doing a, a daily relentless uh, set of fundamentals that take on the quarterback position, the drop, the sets, the reads, and so forth. And I, and I took that to the next level. Leaders are not born. They're developed. And I truly believe that. And they're developed by learning fundamentals yeah. of leadership. So um, that's how the class uh, began. And then what the class incorporates is the definition as we've talked about is it's, it's inspiration. It's inspiring, comes from inside, starts at the heart, inspiring others, which means it's not about you. It's about them to do more, to learn more and become more. That makes somebody a leader. And it also is someone who, who inspires or influences even one person. So the leader's job, and I've already kind of said that, is to find his passion, whatever that is, and we all have one, at least one, and we find that in our narrative, which is the first class that we have. And when we find that narrative, it enables to find our true authentic self to develop authentic relationships and thus influence or inspire others to be better and serve the needs of others. That's what, to me, what a leader is. He's serving the needs of others and I always put a, an asterisk next to it, never asking or expecting anything return, be anything in return, because I believe that's the only way to fulfillment. And, and as someone who was transactional for most of his life and turned the corner in the second half of his life, you know, I stand by that. I see how the universe is wired. And I truly believe that if you give and you're expecting a return, you'll never be fulfilled. And I guess that goes into my next question for young leaders and coaches and young quarterbacks, like what, do, what is, I, what is your number one advice if, for them to get where they want to go in their career? I think the number one advice is the advice I got. And of course I knew everything. So I just kind of, you know, snub my nose at it, but it's to be, put your nose down and be the best you can be at the job you're doing and do it with blinders. And at the same time, realize that, and, and Rick said it earlier, you know, football uh, you know, I, I, I found out that football, you know, I wasn't in the football business, but I was in the ultimate people business of football and yeah. whatever business you're in widget or otherwise, it's the people that come first. So if you get caught up in the task as a leader, you, and you lose sight of the people, you're going to lose the people. But for somebody young, the most important thing is, is just to focus on your work and be the best that you can be to serve the people that you work for and people see everything. And that's, that is the fastest road to success and moving up in a career is just not worrying about where you're going so much as what you're doing and be the best at it. That translates a lot. And I, I think I see that in today's coaches, right? And NFL coaches right now, I think some of the most guys that are most authentic are the guys that are going the longest way. And there's, you can see like Dan Campbell, for example, is just so he's so intentful with how much he cares about the people in front of him. Um, I got two more questions for you. Uh, one, what is the biggest challenge you face in your career and how did you respond? Yeah, you know, there, every challenge is the biggest challenge, you know, that you face is because the one that's directly in front of you, I think again, I, you know, through a transformational yeah. style, 
you know, the challenge is always, am I competent to do the job I'm doing? Because you'll never get the trust of the people if you're just, if you're not, if you're not competent, you can love the people, you can care about the people, you can become a godfather of one of the people's, you know, sons or daughters, but they don't want you to help manage them or master their craft. You need the competency yeah. part of the trust, um, even before the vulnerability part of it. The two are the formula for success. If you're competent and you know your science and you're vulnerable and show that you, you're willing to go first and be vulnerable with the people and show them that they matter, that they're heard, that they're cared for, that they're loved, you know, uh, not as an emotion, but loved as you have their back. And I used to always say love, you know, as when you come to the sideline, you won't meet the enemy. You know, I think that those yeah. two are the are the key to overcoming uh, any of the challenges in the starting point. That's awesome. That's uh, I got a lot. One more question for you to pivot in towards business and how important is it for coaches, especially in 2024, to have a grasp of the business around football, um, particularly with what's going on in college football in the last year or two? Right. I can't speak for college football. I do feel that, and I'm not business oriented that, and, and, and Rick would certainly know that, but I would say that the, the coaches who become head coaches have to understand the media side of it, you know, how to, how to approach the media. You know, my number one rule is I never was talking to the media when I was talking to me, I was always talking to my team first. I knew that they would, whatever messages, I, whatever I was saying to the media, to me, they were just nameless and faceless. What did I want my team to hear? What did I want the team to read? What did I want the team to see on social media? But the other side of it for a head coach is what do the people want to be want to hear? Like there's a lot of coaches in the league that are really outstanding. You know, you, you mentioned Dan Campbell, Pete Carroll, great at it, you know, reaching the people while he reaches the team. And I think there's a nuance to that, that, that a lot of the great Don Shula had that even in his time, you know, he had the ability to reach the people and reach the team through the media. I think that's important. Um, if, if and that's probably the only part of the business that is relatable to me. As you took your job with the Bears and then back to Canada, and you certainly have left your mark in all places in college and, and pro football, seriously, uh, is there a way that uh, coaches themselves have enough leverage to redefine part of how people perceive the profession? Meaning... Uh, you know, you, 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 you lose no matter what you're viewed as a failure. Owners want to be quick to tell people that you're a failure. Is there any way to uh, be, evaluate your last, you know, post 50 Mark Tressman is a very important person for people to understand. That doesn't automatically translate into wins and losses. How do you, how do you bridge the gap in modern football coaching or do you? Yeah, uh, I, I don't, maybe this is kind of, not what you're looking for, Rick, but I'd, I'll just go back to the Bears. Like you asked me about getting fired from the Bears. I mean, I, ma I made mistakes at the Bears. Did I make enough to get fired? It doesn't really matter. But when I look back, there were some things I could have done better. And I always talk to coaches about this now, whether they're assistants or head coaches. When you go into a building, you have to make sure that you are your core values. You have to know what they are, number one, because to me, when we talk about culture in a locker room, it's really the core values of the head coach. And they must be aligned with the general manager and the owner. 
if they're not, if they're not, it's there's going to have be problems. And the only way to overcome that lack of alignment is you have a great quarterback. The great quarterback can overcome anything uh, in a coach's life. Every time I've been with a coach who's been productive, I've been considered a very good coach. When the quarterback, I you know, I didn't get, we didn't get the Cutler thing right in Chicago, and I got fired as a result of that. But the first part is alignment of values, knowing what your values are, knowing they're non-negotiable, and knowing that when it gets noisy, that you can stay on the rails and the, and the locker room understands that they, they have to assimilate those values. I think there's coaches right now in the league who have both the good quarterback, but they also have a value system that runs through the entire organization, particularly the inner circle of the head coach and the, 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 uh, the head coach, general manager, and the coordinators. Is there one Tressman skill, Tressman trait that has caused you to, uh, that's transcendental, that'll cause you to be uh, successful and be uh, hired in all of these different places and take away uh, successes in all these different places? One skill, one trait? Yeah, yeah. I think that when I got in front of the team, they knew I knew the science of football. They knew once I opened my mouth that they were going to they were able going to be able to master their craft because I had the ability to take the science and the complexity of football and make it simple. That's number one. And then I was able and and this is the this is the formula. You have to show your vulnerability. The first thing I did in front of my teams, I told them and I trusted them. So the virtue was not in asking them to trust me, which I don't believe a leader does. Some do. But you extend trust to the team. And the data shows that when you extend trust, people are are normally going to be trustworthy. And then you have to earn it every day. And each and every day, trying to get to know the, make sure that you're putting the people first. I think those, that combination of those three things changed my life forever. And it was a result of taking the time to look back at my life, looking at the mistakes I've made, really uncovering the things that my family taught me. Not a lot, a lot of them were not very good. And realizing that I had taken on a little bit of that in being transactional and then, then turning my life around. And some people say you got to look back and, and, and see where the blood is to be able to move forward in your life. And at 50, I was able to do that. And really, I, to answer your question, that, that's how I did it, by taking a transformational point of view, making sure that I knew my job and making sure that the, the people that I, I, I worked with knew that I cared about them more than I cared about winning on the scoreboard. So a couple more. Uh, you're obviously know more football than the average bear with the whole forest. Uh, and uh, I've heard uh, you in a locker room, uh, TSN, you know, I listened to uh, riveted your pregame speeches before the Grey Cups. And damn, if you don't sound like Shakespeare, but people play for you and they 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 they, they play like hell for you. Uh, how hard do you think it is to coach kids these days? Is it harder than it was before? Uh, are the kids more empowered? Does NIL make it that much more difficult? I know you don't know college, but, you know, speak broadly. Well, well I, I would say this. Um, I didn't find players to be any different in the CFL than the NFL. Players want to be coached, they want to be heard, they want to be uh, cared for and loved. 
I, I truly believe that is universal, regardless of the profession that people are in. Secondly, I had a chance to spend time for three days in training camp at Michigan, and I also was at training at the um, at the uh, championship game in Houston and spent three days practice at practice and in meetings. Just being, you know, Jim and I worked together in in Oakland, and um, so I had a chance to watch him coach his team. There was no entitlement. There was no selfishness. Nobody was talking about how much money anybody was making. There's the nuance of dealing in social media media because they all have their accounts. But, you know, the, the one thing I found with leaders, they have to be relentless. And if you're relentless and consistent with your values, um, I always said some of you guys will get it. Some of you don't. But eventually you do. Eventually you create a wave. And what Jim did at the college level, he, he created a wave of, of, of no entitlement, selflessness and, and love within the, the locker room. So it can be done. Um, and what I've encouraged coaches in college to do, and I know a number one, a number of them have talked about them, you cannot use NIL as an excuse. Right now it's the Wild West, and you know more about this than I do, Rick. It's the Wild West, but they're, they're, if, if you want to make an excuse for it, you can. You want the players to have the money because they deserve it. So you, find, you, you make yourself vulnerable and you tell them you're going to help in any way you can. But we got to put team about everything else, and then every day's got to be about team first. Till it, you just you, you just knock it in their heads, and and and, and if you start in it, and you really create a wave within the locker room. Can your buddy Jim pull it off with the Chargers? Oh, there's there's no question about it. I mean, the history shows that you know he's gonna he's succeeded wherever he's been, and he's walking a situation. You know, the number one rule which I didn't follow as a young coach on my journey is you never go to a place they don't have a quarterback. And they have one. Yeah. yeah and if well, they have one. Yeah. If, if yeah, they have one, have one. And they, yeah, they have one. And, uh, you know, say it ain't so, but I, I, we, we didn't talk about this and you don't have to answer it, but, you know, and I, I, my, my team is in the AFC, so they'll deal with it sometime or another. Uh, does that quarterback need an offensive uh, coordinator or a quarterback whisper here? Are we, uh, who's are we that? thinking about who's that? Who's uh, that? Justin Herbert and Mark Tressman. Oh, I'm sure Jim has. Uh, a really good staff planned and, and uh, you know, I wish him well. Okay. All right. That's a good, that's a good enough answer. We're, we're, one more question, by the way, cause we're not doing, we don't have enough time to do word association. All all the coaches in your life are excellent. And who is the one coaching mentor hero of all of the coaches you've been around that you would want to talk about? You know, it, you know, it, it's really hard to pick one. Cause I swear that, you know, from from Howard Schneller, Jimmy Johnson, Bud Grant, Marty Schottenheimer, George Seifert. Um, you know, I was with Gruden. They all have, they all have, and I've, I've missed a couple. You know, they they all have parts of all of them are in me. Um, but I, I just remember going back to Bud Grant because you know I played against his son, and I re- he was my idol as a young boy, as the head coach of the Vikings, and then seeing him up in the stands in our games in both football and basketball. And then, you know, the call he made to give me an opportunity at 28 years old to be in the National Football League. You know, Howard Schnellenberg got me into the game because he saw something in me that I that I didn't see in myself. And Jimmy Johnson got, um, got uh, Gil Brand on the phone to stop me from, from going to college and wait another year because Jimmy knew I wanted to be an NFL coach just from a starting point. You know, you're talking, you know, Hall of Fame, you know, Hall of Fame people. 
And, uh, but Bud was the most about, you know, family first and, and the job was second. Uh, exhilarating interview with Mark Tressman as we get closer and went to and going through Super Bowl 58 in Vegas. Have a lot of Vegas issues this week, and that's kind of the focus of our grab bag. First, as we normally do, let's talk about gambling. It's obvious this will be the most bet on Super Bowl ever. It's in a town where it was radioactive because of gambling years ago, after the 2017 ruling and the Vegas Golden Knights, and on and on. It becomes an incredible sports town. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But the gambling issue takes some of center stage, and why not? Look who's at the center of the center stage. Yeah, the Swifties. Super Bowl prop bets have long been the core to many fans' enjoyments of the game, but the powerful entry of Taylor Swift and Travis Swift, excuse me, Travis Kelsey, into the NFL and brought a Super Bowl matchup, precipitating a big shift in this year's prop bet market. In addition to the traditional prop bets centered on statistics and game-specific outcomes, the Swift-themed prop bets beginning to surface include, will Kelsey propose to Swift at the game? Will the Super Bowl MVP mention Swift in his acceptance speech? Will Swift appear in Usher's halftime show? You're kidding. Will Swift make it from Tokyo in time for the game? They're also talking about the Earth's rotation and how quickly a plane can fly. This is weird. There's a major catch. Those Swift-oriented prop bets will not be available at many U.S. sports bet uh, books as individual states that have legalized prop bets won't be available at many U.S. sports bets. The prop bets specifically, individual states have legalized, typically require bets be tied in some way to official on-field statistics or game outcomes. I guess whether a proposal or not happens, that's not an official game outlook. Talking about what props we can make in the Taylor Swift-related issues, the Typico Sportsbook Manager tells Front Office Sports, and that is representative of the issue that everybody is focused on during Super Bowl week. So now let's talk about Super Bowl grab bag issues, and there are many more, and it's not just the Swifties. First of all, Allegiant Stadium and the Raiders, a beacon of economic and community impact. The Raiders and Allegiant Stadium emerged as pivotal contributors to the local economy and community, as detailed in the Raiders Impact Report for 2023. The comprehensive document unveils the substantial economic and social contributions made by the team and its iconic stadium, highlighting their role in shaping the future of Vegas. With an economic impact exceeding $2.29 billion, Allegiant Stadium has proven to be a significant draw for visitors, attracting 1.52 million people to Vegas, 88% of whom cited the venue as the primary reason for their visit. This influx of visitors has boosted the local economy and generated $128 million in tax revenue. A lot of money, underscoring the stadium's role as a major economic engine to the city. Allegiant Stadium's status as a top destination, further cemented by its ranking as the fourth top-earning stadium in 2023, according to Billboard, hosting 17 shows and about 725,000 attendees under 19.3 million in revenue. Beyonce's performances stood out as the year's highest grossing events, attracting an average of 86,500 
and $25.8 million in economic impact. Since relocating to Southern Nevada, the Raiders have donated over $10 million to various causes, providing over 400,000 meals, hosting over 815 community and youth football events. These initiatives reflect the Raiders' deep commitment to giving back to the community. The inaugural impact report not only celebrates the achievements of the Raiders and Allegiant Stadium, but also sets a precedent for transparency and accountability, inviting the community to witness of partake in their journey towards sustainable growth and lasting impact. That, of course, is a big deal. How about this as a Super Bowl story from a business perspective? Allegiant Stadium's restrooms. 65,000 fans set to converge on Allegiant Stadium. The CNN business focus shedding light on why the bathrooms operating seamlessly is a crucial element of game day for the biggest game of the year. The summer of 2020, just before the $2 billion stadium opened, a super flush was conducted, flushing nearly 1,400 toilets and urinals simultaneously. How's that job? to see how you could handle the load. The meticulous attention uh, to detail underscores the importance of restroom functionality during major events. And for instance, Nevada's building codes mandate approximately one lavatory for every 120 men and one for every 60 women. But modern stadiums like Allegiant go beyond these minimum requirements to include more comfort as well. The importance of restroom design not limited to sports arenas. For example, Baltimore Washington International Airport's $55 million restroom overhaul demonstrates how addressing restroom needs can significantly impact overall satisfaction, emphasizing privacy, accessibility, and efficiency. As Allegiant Stadium prepares for the Super Bowl, the Super Flush test and the thoughtful restroom design exemplify the unseen yet crucial aspects of event planning that contribute to a show. Bet you didn't expect to hear that on a national radio show, but you heard it. Next, local businesses benefiting from the Super Bowl. The showdown approaches. The team's stellar performances have transformed stores into a magnet for fans nationwide, all demanding some context Niners merchandise and in every context Chiefs merchandise. Demand so high that March created a wait list. Business owners collectively agree this year is unlike any other, attributing the unprecedented success to what? Taylor Swift and the Swifties. There's a demand for Taylor Swift Chiefs cookies. They're widely popular. And on and on. Crossover, crossover, crossover. The Chiefs can bring home the Lombardi Trophy, some would hope. But between the franchises transformed this year, an exciting chapter for local business. Really important. How about, in the context of the whole television of this mega event, the rising cost of live sports? A recent analysis by CNN highlights a concerning trend. The surging prices of sports tickets, particularly emphasized by the record-breaking cost of Super Bowl 58. The average now exceeds... Nine grand. When I say now, there it's so it fluctuates so much. I hate to even use the number because it'll be much higher before it's said and done. 
The average cost of attending an NFL game climbed to 120 per ticket in 2023. Total expense of a family of four reaching 631, encapsulating tickets, food, souvenirs, and parking. The trend is mirrored across other sports. MLB tickets experiencing a 3.5% increase to an average of 37 bucks, but the trend continues to increase and Super Bowl tickets are obviously a, an award for the well-connected and just try to get a ticket from an official organization and scalp it or put it in the secondary market. They are absolutely traced and you get in trouble. The advice to keep it or don't apply. But this year, you're not just going to see a game, you're going to see a major social event. Finally, as far as the Super Bowl and NFL, it is Super Bowl related because it's the week before. Pro Bowl, not a Pro Bowl itself, but Pro Bowl games. The interrelationship between the three-point games and the flag football, some say, was genius. The ratings are riveting. It dominated Sunday afternoon. The NHL All-Star Game moved to Saturday, not directly because of this, but it's a conflagration of perfect storm situations that give the Pro Bowl games a Sunday window before the Super Bowl. Simulcast on Disney XD, ESPN, ESPN Plus, ABC, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, the 18 to 34 group makes up a demographic that was important, certainly in the Pro Bowl games skills competition, drawing an average audience of 1.14 million, up 8%, and the best figure for that part of the event since 2018, and it got even bigger, and even up 34% in the 12 to 17 group. They don't buy stuff right now, but they'll certainly buy stuff soon, and the NFL has to be pleased with what they've seen. The final NFL issue for the grab bag this week are the top earners themselves, the statistics and valuation in terms of the existing contract per game. Barbara Vidal, Journo Research, talked about the list. At the pinnacle, Ryan Tannehill of the Titans, $2.7 million for each of the 10 games he played, reflecting not just the value placed on his role, but also on the premium on quarterback positions in the league. His earnings are a testament to the significant impact on the field despite the limited number of appearances. Following Tannehill, Grady Jarrett, Braden Smith secure the second and third spots. And going down to number 10, Colton Miller, who earned $1.094 million per game over 13 games. Financial Overview not only celebrates the top earners, but also opens the window to the broader economics of the NFL, where the top earners uh, are intrinsically tied to on-field performance, potential, and strategic importance of their roles. Look at long snappers. They are pretty much the long-term contracts and senior statesmen of, statesmen of the league, primarily because of their position. So that's all grab bag relative to Super Bowl. Let's end it with some grab bag tech issues as well. The first tech Super Bowl one, game fam for SpongeBob-themed Roblox activation in Super Bowl. 
Users will see NFL, Super Bowl, and SpongeBob-themed minigames, challenges, and items throughout the game. And the NFL's use of Roblox as a platform to uh, minigames, exchanging existing and prospective Gen Z alpha fans. It dates back to 2022 when the leagues developed a persistent experience for the platform. And when you think about it, this becomes a big issue as we move forward. Finally, MLB debuting their mixed reality app with Apple Vision Pro retails for 3500 bucks. That price point will go down. And certainly the re- mixed reality app just in time for the baseball season. Finally, SAP FC Bayern Munich collaborate to develop a generative AI application for scouting. We've talked about scouting before. This becomes a much bigger deal, along with the PGA Tour launching an Apple Vision Pro app as Live Golf harnesses AI power for Google Cloud. What does this mean? Everybody looking at AI, especially as we move into Super Bowl week. This is a laboratory for fan activation and technological innovation. Clearly, Super Bowl dominating, but in all contexts, charity, tech, economics, and such. Our last segment, three to watch. What are we looking for after the Super Bowl when we get back to real life? Well, number one, Kylian Mbappe will sign with Real Madrid this offseason, and he looks at the monumental shift of the landscape of European football from Paris Saint-Germain to Real Madrid after his contract expires. Reports from CNN and Fox Sports highlight this transition results from deliberate planning and strategic decision-making by Mbappe as his legacy is known for his rich history and the implications are profound. The transfer is a masterstroke for Real Madrid and obviously we got to watch that in the future. That's number one. Number two, the Harbaugh's. Well, Jim Harbaugh, formally announced by the Spanos family as the coach, five-year, $16 million per year. He seems consent to run the team as a plaything, the make-or-break move of by the owners. Say, people, this is not a plaything move. This is a big deal. And Harbaugh, out of the box, by talking about his goal of bringing multiple championships to the L.A. area, and we don't mean the Rams, so... That's number two. And finally, number three. The one thing we can be sure of is after the Super Bowl, the bottom line is that the average franchise value of the NFL teams, which has been about $1.14 billion in revenue and over $2 billion or $3 billion in average, will continue to grow, to go up. And the Chiefs, who were ranked 23rd worth $4.3 billion, Dollars revenue of $540 million. Guarantee. We can guarantee. No matter what happens, they go up. A big deal and obviously something that everybody will continue to watch regardless of results on the field. What an incredible Perfect Storm week. An incredible Perfect Storm show. We'd like to thank Mark Tressman for being part of it. would like to thank all of you for listening and watching. And join us once again when we go on the record. I'm the sports professor, Rick Haro. Good to see you.